News. Culture. Community. Every day. On 1019 WDET. A different kind of public radio. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Since the death of Justice Antonin Scalia, the United States Supreme Court has just had eight justices, while Republicans in Congress block President Obama's nomination to fill the vacant seat. Just yesterday, Senator John McCain doubled down on that kind of behavior, and he's told a Philadelphia radio station that Republicans will continue to block any of Hillary Clinton's nominations should she win the presidency in November. Quote, he said... I promise you that we will be united against any Supreme Court nominee that Hillary Clinton, if she were president, would put up. That's a very different kind of statement from someone like John McCain. It's especially remarkable given that three of our sitting justices will be older older than 80 years old in just a couple years. 80 is sort of a marker on the court historically. Not too many justices have served past that point. Assuming Congress allows nominations to move forward, the next president will undoubtedly get to shape the nation's high court for many, many years after she or he is out of office. I want to talk today about what role this debate over the court is playing in the 2016 presidential election. What makes this election important in terms of the Supreme Court? What do you think is at stake. And what do you think about the idea of four more years of Congress obstructing Supreme Court nominations if Hillary Clinton is elected and Republicans keep control of the Senate? Here to talk about this issue uh, for the rest of the hour are two people who know more about it than uh, most people I know in America. Robert Sadler is a professor uh, at Wayne State University Law School, and Amy Howe is former editor and current contributor to SCOTUS Blog, which, when I covered the Supreme Court in the early and mid-2000s, was the resource for information about what is going on on the Supreme Court. Robert and Amy, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Hi, thanks, to, thanks for having me. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and of course, we want to hear from you. What are you thinking about the Supreme Court? What are you thinking about the idea of obstruction and the Supreme Court? That's going on right now, has been going on since the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. John McCain now says it'll continue if Hillary Clinton wins and the Republicans hold on to the Senate. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page, the WDT Facebook page, uh, post a comment there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to include your comments in the conversation. Professor Sadler, I want to start with you. Those words from Senator McCain caught me by a little bit of surprise. Uh, I, I think of John McCain as, as on this issue, <clears throat> one of the more reasonable people in the Congress, in, in the Senate, and this is a pretty hard line to take uh, in, in sort of advance of even the decisions that are going to be made on November 8th. He's saying Hillary Clinton wins, Republicans hold on to the Senate, we're not going to have, we're not going to get a, a ninth justice confirmed. What do you think about that? Um, it's always dangerous to speculate why someone does that. <laughs> this is so a bit of posture, uncharacteristic right? of Senator McCain, 
who's been a very responsible senator. There's a side of me that suspects that the reason he may have said it is to encourage Republicans to vote against Trump. Right. (laughs) Uh, I believe the Republican establishment wants to see Trump defeated uh, so they can retain their control of the party and the conservative movement, and that this is saying to Republican uh, Republicans who care about the Supreme Court and care about appointments, don't worry, we'll stop Hillary from appointing a flaming liberal to the court. Right. But, but of course, uh, the, the language in the Constitution really sort of favors the executive in, in this regard. It says, shall appoint with the advice and consent. Shall nominate. Shall nominate with the advice, the advice and consent. Shall uh, appoint. appoint. So talk to me about why, why we are in this situation where Congress, which is given, I think, uh, not the most important role in this, in this case, is playing the most important role and keeping the court at eight seats. The answer is that when the framers in the 18th century drafted our Constitution, they did not contemplate political parties. They <laughs> right. called them factions. They didn't exist. They assumed right. it wouldn't happen in the United States, that all the people in public life would be aristocratic, men like themselves, dedicated to public service. One of the many talks as I give, as you know, I talk to uh, community groups. I do op-eds in the Detroit Free Press. I try to explain our 18th century constitution to the public. (laughs) And one of the points that I always make is that the framers didn't contemplate political parties. So we have political parties superimposed on a constitution that wasn't supposed to have them. Right, right. Uh, Amy Howe, uh, I, I want to get you to talk up front about what you feel is at stake in this election in terms of the court, not just the seats that may be in play, but the issues that may also be in play and how they may change if uh, Hillary Clinton is elected president. Of course, uh, if she is elected and gets to appoint a, a ninth justice to the court. Uh, I, I think it'll be the first time since 1969. My my math may be off a little. Uh, that we'll have a Democratic majority on the Supreme Court. What will what will change uh, if if that happens? It's hard to say because so much depends on exactly who the nominee is, and you know certainly. You know, we're talking first of first and foremost about a replacement for Justice Antonin Scalia, sure. who we think of as as being very solidly conservative, and he was in almost all respects, but not in all respects. You know, with regard to you know, he believed very strongly that the Constitution means what it says. You know, that it's not a changing document, and so that you know, on, there were some issues, and there were relatively isolated issues, but some issues involving criminal rights, for example. Uh, you know, he would, is actually probably more pro-defendant than some of the potential nominees, including Merrick Garland, sure. because he believes in, in the, believed in the meaning of the Constitution so strongly. Having said that, there are you know, plenty of other issues in which you could see a shift on the court. Some of them that come to mind are gun control and campaign finance. It was a five-to-four decision in the Citizens United case. And then there's a question of, you know, some of the other issues like affirmative action and uh, reproductive rights, where the the court in the last year or so has issued uh, relatively 
liberal rulings, uh, but maybe solidifying those liberal rulings some more. And, and uh, there's also then the question of who else might retire. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 83. During the Obama administration, there was a lot of pressure on her to retire, mm-hmm. and she resisted it. She's still there. She's in, in good health and, I think, enjoying being the, the leader of the court's liberal wing. But will she, would she be able to withstand the pressure? Would she feel some uh, obligation to retire if Clinton were elected? I, 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 think, I think she may. Yeah. Um, Justice Stephen Breyer is 78. There might be pressure on him to retire as well. I don't see anyone else retiring voluntarily. Um, and then there's the fascinating question of what would happen if Donald Trump were elected. Sure. Justice Anthony Kennedy is 80. Um, he would, if Donald Trump were elected, almost certainly be replaced, if he were to retire, be replaced by someone uh, more significantly more conservative. Yeah. Um, and so he might, might choose not to retire. Um, and I'm not sure that anyone else would retire voluntarily if Donald Trump were elected. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Robert Sedler, a professor, distinguished professor of law at Wayne State University, and Amy Howe, former editor and current contributor to SCOTUS blog, one of the primary resources for information about the U.S. Supreme Court. We are talking about the role the court is playing in the 2016 presidential contest and what the next president will be able to do or not do to reshape the court. How will that affect issues like gun control, immigration, abortion, or voting rights? All issues that we've seen pretty major decisions from the court in recent years. And how are you looking at the election in terms of the Supreme Court? Are you thinking about voting one way or another based on what you think Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton might do with regard to uh, Supreme Court nominations. 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page, the WDT Facebook page, post a comment there, or hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter. Let's go to Greg in Fraser. Greg, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. Um, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, if, if the Republicans refuse to confirm a, a Supreme Court justice, can't our representatives, can't we pressure our representatives to find those, that, that person in uh, contempt of Congress and remove them from Congress uh, um, if they refuse to do their job? Yeah, great question, Greg. And a similar question from Howard on Twitter. He says, would it be possible to bring a mandamus action to require uh, the Senate to advise and consent? Uh, cost- constitutional questions there, uh, Professor Sedler. No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> It's not possible. <laughs> the only remedy is the next election. But remember that the party that controls the Senate can change the rules by a majority vote. It ordinarily takes 60 votes to enact legislation right. and 60 votes for the Senate to confirm. When the Senate was re- when the Democrats controlled the Senate and the Senate was refusing to confirm Uh, 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 executive officials and judges to the federal court, the Democratic majority changed the rules so it only takes a majority to uh, confirm judges, but they left the rule intact for the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. that it takes 60 votes. If If Hillary Clinton is elected president and the Democrats control the Senate and the Republicans 
use the 60-vote requirement to block any Supreme Court nominee from getting a vote, the Democrats can change the rules for a simple majority vote. Yeah. Uh, and vice versa. Which would make it, it would just make it easier to get this done. And conversely, if Trump is elected president and the Republicans control the Senate, the Democratic minority could block votes. But again, the Republican majority should change it. Yeah. So the answer to the caller's questions is that the remedy is for the party that controls the Senate to change the rules. So if you are, let's say, a Democrat, and you're very concerned about the Republicans blocking uh, Clinton's appointments, you want to see a Democratic majority in the Senate. Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's go to Josh, who has uh, yet another question about uh, the process here. Josh, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. I don't know if it, it's happened that as I've matured, the, image, the, the immature politics of the country, the hyper-partisanship has just naturally grown into the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, if that's always been the case, I want to ask for some perspective. If it's just me, because it seems like now we take uh, commonplace, these conversations of partisanship in the context of court nominations, which it's not supposed to be. And so if you humor me for a moment, taking this to... Uh, you know, sort of a, a terrible conclusion. Think of like this: a dystopian future where uh, an incapacitated court uh, uh, judge is held alive and 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 kept just the purpose alive. <laughs> I'm talking about tubes and hospitals, yeah. just to keep them from being replaced. Right. Right. So our, the partisanship here is disturbing, and it's really, I think, a testament to the the need for electoral reform, which I see no mature conversation about. Um, and the the kind of infantile politics we have now, where the the one place that I thought was supposed to be saved, a graceful place for nonpartisan politics, is the judges and the Supremes, where we just want academics and scholars there, persons who are learned, just to to, to be our sober judges. Right. Now that's that's even that's you been feel started. like that's Shame. that's no longer the case. Uh, Amy Howe. Uh, uh, to speak to the, the the idea of the court as political actor, the justices as political actors, the process of confirming them as uh, overly partisan exercises. Is that new here in America? I mean, of course, my memory uh, is that it's not. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's relatively new um, in the sense that you know Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has said many times that. In today's partisan environment, she could never be confirmed. She was confirmed overwhelmingly, yeah. you know, something like ninety-eight to, to zero, two. Somebody, you know, yeah. but you know, she was this liberal woman who'd been a lawyer for the ACLU, and you just, <laughs> you know, you kind of can't imagine that happening in today's environment. Um, you know, once that, I think, you know, the the good news for America, I mean, is that once they are on the court, you know, many of these decisions do breakdown on five to four, uh, you know, on sort of what we think of as ideological lines, but but many of them do not. I, I would say that once the justices are, are actually on the Supreme Court, it is our, our most functional branch of government, particularly when it, it has nine justices, that, uh, although it doesn't right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Professor Sadler? Well, I've, I keep st- statistics on this because I do a lot of talk about the court as an institution. Uh-huh. And only about a quarter of the cases 
are constitutional cases. Yeah, and not that's all right. of them Great point. are high profile, ideologically driven cases. Most of the cases, uh, constitutional or otherwise, get decided by unanimous or near unanimous votes. Yeah. But it is in the high profile, ideological driven cases where it makes a difference. As you know, Steve, I was one of the lawyers for the plaintiff in the Michigan case of the Boer versus Snyder, where yes. we challenged the ban on marriage for same-sex couples. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were pretty optimistic that we would win. How did our case get to the Supreme Court? Because we drew a panel on the Sixth Circuit of two Republican appointees and one Democratic <laughs> appointee. When the case, there were five cases that had been decided by federal courts of appeal, with the exception of Judge Posner on the Seventh Circuit, who was a Republican appointee and voted to strike down a ban on marriage yes. for same-sex couples, all the Republican appointees said the ban was constitutional, <laughs> and all the Democrat appointees said it's unconstitutional. Ide- ideology does make a difference, and it is those relatively few but extremely important high-profile, ideologically-driven cases where the justice does make a difference. Yeah, well, and that's what people, of course, uh, pay the most attention to, uh, those, those high-profile cases. They get media attention, uh, and, and they define people's view of the court and the justices, perhaps unfairly. Uh, let's go to Renee in Detroit. Renee, welcome to Detroit Today. I had a... Yep. Renee? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, now I can. Okay. I had a comment that um, it had occurred to me that the Supreme Court, as it is now, could play a pivotal role in this election before it's even decided. If there's a challenge, uh, say if Trump does not win and he challenges it and it ends up being a Bush versus Gore situation (laughs) where it does get to the Supreme Court during this election, as he is vowed that this is rigged and who knows he may it may end up in the supreme court again my concern is that uh trump uh has called out uh judge ginsburg earlier this year for making disparaging comments against him um would that uh, would that factor into a supreme court decision in this election (laughs) if they were called into a decisive role uh regarding this whole election. Uh, Renee, I mean, the one thing that's reflected uh, really strongly in your call is the very uh, profound memory of Bush v. Gore. I think even 16 years later, many Americans uh, still sort of have a a sore spot, I I suppose might be the right way to describe it, about uh, that case and the way it was decided. Uh, Amy Howe, how likely are we to see something like that again here? And would the 4-4 split uh, right. play a that's, role, I think, That's is the, the question. fascinating question yeah. is, you know, it's a, a scenario that I think probably the entire country hopes won't play out. But it also goes to illustrate Professor Sedler's point that the lower court judges are very important as well, because yes. if you have a justice court and they divide equally the lower court decision stands um, you know I do think that this is this may well be a 
special case that this is not would not be precisely like Bush versus Gore, given all of the discussion, the accusations by Donald Trump of voter fraud before the election has even taken place. I think that some of the court's more conservative justices might look askance on those accusations as well, and mm-hmm. would uh, you know? I think that the justices want nothing more desperately than to stay out of this fray because it's still a sore spot. Sixteen years later. Yeah, yeah, Professor Sadler. Uh, Bush v. Gore is one of those cases that happened because of a combination of unexpected things. <laughs> that the presidential race was so close, and that the Florida vote difference was razor thin. Uh, The Gore people made a strategy decision not to seek a statewide recount. What's interesting is, despite all the controversy, the decision was accepted. And Gore especially said the nation has to accept the decision. What is troubling to me as a constitutionalist is Trump's suggestion that we don't accept the result. The election sure. is rigged. In every, you can in every election, forever. Right. in every election, the losing candidate, including Gore, comes down on the side. The election is over. We must move on. This is very frightening to me as a constitutionalist. Yeah. But I don't think we're going to have another Bush v. Gore for one of the reasons Amy suggests. Yeah, well, the polls don't suggest it's going to be that close, but of course that could change between now and November 8th. All right, when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the Supreme Court and why this election is so important to the Supreme Court. Uh, Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guests are Robert Sedler, distinguished professor of law at Wayne State University, and Amy Howe, former editor and current contributor to SCOTUS blog. We are talking about the U.S. Supreme Court and the role it's playing in the 2016 presidential election. Also, what role the next president will play in shaping the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, If you want to join that conversation, talk about what you're thinking about when you go into the booth on November 8th with regard to the Supreme Court. Is that one of the things that's driving you to vote for Hillary Clinton or to for Donald Trump, uh, are you concerned about the partisanship in Washington that so far has deprived us of a ninth justice uh, in the wake of the death of Justice Antonin Scalia? Republicans won't even give Merrick Garland a hearing because he was nominated by President Barack Obama. John McCain now says that's going to continue if Hillary Clinton li- uh, wins in November and the Republicans hang on to the Senate. What do you think about that? Is that uh, the new reality? Is that the new norm for us in Washington? 313-577-1019 is the number. 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Amy Howe, uh, I want to start uh, with you here and and talk about this, this, um, this obstruction of Merrick Garland. Uh, I was there in Washington covering the court for both the nominations and confirmations of 
Justice, Chief Justice John Roberts and uh, Sam Alito, those were pretty rancorous discussions. There was a lot of anger on the Democratic side uh, about both of those nominees. Uh, certainly the Democrats weren't in a position to do much about it, but they weren't happy about it. It does seem, and we had a call about this earlier, it does seem like we've moved into a different space uh, now where uh, where we've had a nominee for uh, not get a hearing for the first time uh, in in less than I can't remember what it was 180 days or something uh, nominees had always either gotten a hearing or, or withdrawn Merrick Garland is just sort of just twisting out there uh, in the wind waiting to to find out what happens to him uh, is there something about what uh, what the Republicans are doing now that is beyond the pale or uh, uh, to, to, to sort of restate that question, would we see the Democrats doing the same thing uh, if if the tables were turned, if there were a Republican president and they had control of the Senate? I mean, I think the short answer to that question is, is I hope not. Um, you know, <laughs> right. I hope that, and that's what I think the real concern for everyone who follows the Supreme Court and cares about the Supreme Court is, you know, that are, are we at the beginning of a race to the bottom here that where, you know, neither party is willing to, to be the bigger party and, and, and go ahead and confirm, but it certainly is. I mean, this has, this debate really has had so little to do with the qualifications of Merrick Garland himself. I mean, the debate with, with the Chief Justice John Roberts and, and Samuel Alito was, was over their records, um, and you know, certainly that's debatable and people, people voted, but this really has nothing to do with Merrick Garland. It's all about you know, control of that ninth slot, and, and the Republicans came out quickly after after Justice Scalia died and said, we believe the next president uh, who will take office in approximately 11 months should get to choose the, the new nominee. And really, it has, has left the Supreme Court, you know, the justices of the Supreme Court, I think, would say publicly that they're getting the work done. And in many ways, they are getting the work done. As Professor Sedler did, said, you know, many of their decisions aren't high-profile constitutional issues. They are interpreting statutes and Sure. and regulations, but the, they are, I, I think it's fair to say, not able to do all of the work that they'd like to be able to do. You know, there were several high-profile cases last year in which the court simply couldn't reach a decision on the merits. There was a, another case involving the Obama administration's birth control mandate in which they effectively punted. They sent it back to the lower courts with instructions basically to try and figure something out. Right. And it really is having an effect, I think, on the Supreme Court and on the legitimacy of the Supreme Court because people, when they see things like this, tend to think of the Supreme Court as being a, a politicized institution. Yeah. Professor said, Well, um, I haven't looked at the docket for the upcoming term. Amy, you're probably familiar with it, but it's my impression, backing up what you've just said, that the court, which controls its own docket, doesn't have high-profile cases on the docket for next year. Am I wrong about that? I th that, is, I, I, that is not a coincidence. I mean, the, the other thing that's interesting is that probably uh, a couple of the, the higher-profile cases, including one that's an important religious liberty question, mm -hmm 
on the court's current docket are cases that were granted before Justice Scalia died but weren't argued in the the past term. They were pushed forward into this term. Um, They are all cases in which the conservative side prevailed below uh, lost below and was asking the Supreme Court to weigh in. And these three cases haven't been scheduled yet for oral argument, which suggests that even the Supreme Court itself is worried about the possibility that they're going to deadlock 4-4 four, four and not be able have. to reach decisions in yeah. these cases. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Jan in Milford. Jan, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thanks. Um, I just, my comment was that when McCain says that he isn't going to, they're not going to hear. Yep, Jane. He isn't going to yeah, hear any appointment by Hillary if she becomes president. Isn't that hijacking the Supreme Court? <laughs> I mean, they're not doing their jobs then. I mean, yeah. if they're saying, I'm going to take a job, I'm going to run for Senate. And I'm part of my job is to approve or to hear have hearings and approve Supreme Court justices. But if she's president, I'm not going to do my job. Yeah. Uh, uh, to me, it says that you don't get your job. <laughs> and that would be like me saying I'm a teacher. But for the next four years, I'm not going to teach. <laughs> because I don't I don't like the principal or something. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't uh, Jan, like the principal, so I'm not going to teach. Uh, Jan, great, great comment. Uh, I mean, we should be clear. John McCain can't do what he's saying on his own, A. Uh, he's not the Senate majority leader, uh, nor is he likely to be, I don't think. Uh, I mean, some of this is, of course, political posturing, I think, as Professor Sedler pointed out, as a way of uh, firing up a part of uh, the Republican voting base to, to, to make the outcome something that they can they can live with. But uh, I, I think Jan's call uh, is reflective of some of the frustrations that people have with uh, this kind of behavior. I mean, he, he's up for re-election, which I think is he also is. an important right. point to make. And he, his, one of his spokeswomen did walk it back a little bit. <laughs> you know, he's, right. He said that, of course, Senator McCain will look at any individual record, um, you know, but the, the broader point that he was trying to make was that Hillary Clinton had a clear record of supporting liberal judicial nominees, So, sure, sure. Uh, and he's not on the Senate Judiciary Committee. There, so. That's also true. He's There's not. another possibility. Assuming Clinton wins, if she wins, and Charles Grassley, the chair of the Judiciary Committee from Ohio, is like, from, from Iowa, Iowa yeah. is likely to be reelected. He may decide, and McConnell may go along with him, that it is better to confirm uh, the uh, you know Clinton's nominee uh, Merrick Garland than to give Clinton I'm sorry uh, Obama's nominee Merrick Garland than to give Clinton the appointment. Right. I mean, why would Merrick Garland subject himself to all this, knowing he'd be hanging in the wind? I think because of the possibility that the Republicans may decide to go with him rather than give Clinton an appointment. Sure. Anything is possible in a highly politicized world. The world had changed a lot in 30 <laughs> years. Scalia was confirmed unanimously sure. or near unanimously in 1986. The controversy started when those advising Reagan pushed Robert Bork, yeah. who was the a lightning year, rod, sure. who was just a lightning rod, uh, had Reagan nominated a less controversial justice it would have been confirmed yeah you feel like then and you feel like the the sort of 
wars over over these seats might not have started. It, it not had it had not before that time when Supreme Court justices were denied confirmation. It was usually because, regardless of the motivation, something that they had done, like a Fortis yeah. had been involved with a organized crime person, uh, was that uh, and it was that kind of stuff. Uh, and um, now it's very ideological. And in all fairness, this began with Bork, uh, and it was the Democrat-controlled Senate that, that refused yeah. to confirm Bork. Yeah. Go I ahead, think that's Amy. an important point, and then there's just been a sense of turnabout is fair play ever since, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's go to Aaron in Detroit. Aaron, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Hey. Thanks uh, to the guests for sharing their expertise. Mm-hmm. I just want to say this, and uh, I'm not an anarchist, but uh, <laughs> what this is showing with the refusal of Congress to follow the set guidelines because of their preference uh, you know it's it's what is sh- is setting a precedent that we will not adhere to the rules if we don't like something and that is an indication that uh, the whole system has been uh, uh, shown to be not working anymore. We are holding on to a system that we claim to have outgrown uh, intellectually, morally. Uh, uh, when the when the Constitution in this country was built and 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 the principles founded, uh, we have claimed to have outgrown that in so many ways. But we desperately hold on to it as if we are afraid that we can't build something better. Why don't we surrender to the fact that it doesn't work anymore? It's too easily manipulated. Well, it's too easily taken advantage of. Why really, don't we create something new? That's a really interesting point, Aaron, the idea that, that you might be able to do it differently. Uh, we've got about a minute uh, left, uh, Professor Sedler. Talk about why that's either possible or maybe not Maybe not likely. The yeah. framers were incredible egotists. They believed <laughs> that they had the perfect system of government. They made it so difficult to amend two-thirds of both houses and three-quarters of approval the of the states. Yeah. The reason we have the Electoral College is that the president, the, the framers, aristocrats as they were, didn't trust the people sure. to elect the president. They feared a, quote, demagogue would get the support of the people who were white male property owners, of course, of farmers, artisans. Uh, I'll let you draw a current conclusion if you want. But uh, so uh, they made a, a move toward democracy by allowing the voters to elect electors who were going to be wise men from each state who would choose a president. It's not, you're not going to amend the Constitution. Both parties like the system because they're used to it. The big states like it because they count a lot. The little states like it because they at least count a little. It's only academics who propose changes, and nobody pays any attention to the academics. So you're going to have to learn to live with it. All right. Uh, We'll have to leave it there. Robert Sedler, Professor of Law at Wayne State University, Amy Howe, former editor and current contributor to SCOTUS Blog. Thank you both for being here on Detroit today. Thanks for having us. All right. Uh, That's going to do it for me. I will be back tomorrow. Hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDT Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station. See you tomorrow.